Hey everyone, this is the host of Fast Talk, Chris Case. As many of you know, Colby Pierce has his own podcast now called Cycling in Alignment. He recently sat down with EF Education First General Manager Jonathan Botters, who needs no introduction. He thought it would be a good episode to also share on the Fast Talk channel. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe directly to Cycling in Alignment wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. Enjoy. Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for today's episode with none other than the legendary Jonathan Vodders. That's Vodders, which is spelled like daughters, but with a V, in case you were wondering. Today, we get deep into the woods on some training methods, how we were both trained under the legendary Dutch coach, Audrey van Diemen, JB's training methods with some of the riders on the EF team, and many of our early racing adventures, including the infamous hanging things out the window of my Honda Accord as a pseudo 17-year-old wind tunnel. We do talk over each other a little bit at times. The rhythm can lead to some blurted statements on my part. Sorry about that. In spite of these layers of audio information, I believe there are some great nuggets you'll find. Wisdom nuggets dropped by JV. Without further ado, Jonathan Vodders. So uh, in my garage, I have a photo of you and I and Norm on the Time Trial Nationals podium. Right. But it's like the most awkward shot ever because... I, you won and I got third and Norm was, was, we made a Norm sandwich and, uh, but you're like the way that photographer caught you. It's a, it's an ad. I think Doug ran it for Colorado Cyclist. Right. Yeah. Cause you wrote for CompTEL, Colorado Cyclist back then. But like the photo is super awkwardly posed cause you're like halfway D, D like celebratory podium positioning. So your wrist is kind of like half weirdly caught. So you look like you're pointing at some random object. It's just really weird. Right. (laughs) But anyway, I mean, you're winning. Right. National, so yeah, you know. so I mean, you know, who cares if I was exactly a right? Random object. Yeah, I remember that TT well because I decided to be the guy who was like, the only way I'm going to win this is if I do ridiculous shit. So I, that was the year I had Noblet weld me a 22 centimeter long stem, and I rode the Superman position in a road time trial with a 700 C front disc. Damn, I didn't even know you did that. I almost died like multiple times. Yeah, yeah, I know, and that was hilly too. That was, wasn't that wasn't a flat time trial. It was on well, it was on a freeway. It was straight, but it was straight. But, but it, it was had like a lot rolling. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah but I just was like, <laughs> but then like the photographer car would go by, and I'd be like, ah, like in the right. other lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. This is a perfect segue into our our intro conversation about right. your early cycling mentors and and the people that you um, idolized or perhaps. Maybe didn't idolize, but yeah, I mean, well, I certainly had a couple of people who I idolized, but they certainly wouldn't have qualified as mentors. I mean, you remember that I thought Alexi Graywall was super cool, but like he would not be one that. I mean, I don't even think I ever spoke to him. Did much less did he try to mentor me? Right. Um, I don't think he really tried to mentor anyone. Really, I, yeah. That wasn't no. Alexi's style. No, no, so that much. wasn't like his thing. But yeah, I mean, when I think back, the thing is, is in that era of bike racing, like now. 
all of your young riders that are coming up. They've had coaches, they've had mentors, they've had parents involved, they've had the multiple levels of, of, you know, they started in this club and then they, or their parents hired them, this coach and yada, yada, yada. And, and, uh, yeah, they have a lot of guidance. Like by the time they're, you know, 20 years old, they have eight years of training peaks files and they know exactly what their 20 minute power is and their five minute power and et cetera, et cetera. Which, you know, there are good and bad points to that. I mean, you know, um, but in our generation, we, we were completely self-taught. You know, my, you did, well, you didn't have parents. My parents didn't particularly think bike racing was like the best idea. They were happy to like drive me to the races, but they sort of did it halfway begrudgingly. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> but they certainly weren't going to mentor me. I mean, you know. Occasionally my, motor pacing us to the Air Force road race when we were late. Right. Yeah. And I, <laughs> kind I, of. That was a, that was a greater deal. That, it's, Colby's referring to my mom was trying to motor pace us on a highway. My mom, <laughs> okay, she's 85 years old now. So this isn't, you know, this is, this is 25 years ago. So she's like 60. So she's a 60 year old woman in an Oldsmobile station wagon attempting a motor pace for the first time. And, you know, of course she's nervous because we're driving in the shoulder and, and she like sees a rabbit go across the street, who knows, right? And like hits the brakes and I slam into the bumper and go onto the roof of the car and I, I called my mom the B word. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was a dark, not my dark moment. Not my moment. Yeah. Just <laughs> yelling at your 60 year old mother driving a station wagon sorry, and calling her up. Sorry, Donna. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, that goes back to my point that we had zero guidance. Like there was, I mean, really none. If you, if you look at it, like, I mean, there were people that would try to give you advice. I mean, you know, Bart tried to give me advice yeah. and, but was right. it actually good advice? <laughs> or just <laughs> advice? Yeah. Or was it just advice? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I feel like both you and I, in a way, you could almost say like we mentored each other and we did that just by like reading everything that was possibly available on physiology back then. And then you'd say, well, I think we should try this. And I'd be like, well, that's dumb. Let's try this instead or whatever. But yep. the point of it was as actually by the time you and I were 21 years old or thereabouts, we were relative to our peers in terms of what we were doing. I mean, it might not have always been right, but in terms of our thought process and trying to go faster, it was like way more evolved than what anyone else was doing at that point in time. Um, you know, like I said, it was, there's a high degree of ex experimentality to it, but, um, but it was, you know, we were actually sort of pushing in the direction that everything is nowadays, not trying to say that, you know, we were ahead of our time, but in a lot of ways, actually we were the, the ahead of our time and, and, you know, and, some of those things were wrong and, you know, and a lot of our theories, I remember, you know, I, I, my favorite one being your big gear theory, but it's like, it's not about like, <laughs> so there's the big, big gear theory, right? Big bang theory. Colby was like, okay, well my oxygen carrying capacity isn't actually that high. So I'm going to utilize the fact that I have more muscle mass, which this isn't actually dumb, right? So I'm just on climbs. I'm going to push like massively huge gears and therefore there'll be less movement. And therefore, since there's less movement, I'll use less oxygen and therefore I'll climb faster. Did I actually we say all that? God damn. Oh, yeah. smart. <laughs> yeah. And this is when you're like 16, 17. <laughs> this isn't even when you're in your 20. No, this is like 16 or 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And so there was this sort of this like six month period where Colby tried to go up every single here at like 50 rpm and 
like it kind of works for like five minutes. Right. And then your legs just completely fall apart on you. And yeah. Yeah. So. (laughs) Especially me being a pretty fascially fluid athlete. I didn't have the greatest force control. So even if I did have the strength to push the gear, I just fall to pieces. My back would start to hurt. Right. That's funny. Yeah. Huh. Wow. I'd forgotten about that little tidbit. I mean, I'll, so by the time Adrian came along, he was like the person who gave us this direction that we yeah. needed, right? Uh, when you started did, emailing. Did, did Adri, did you ever pay Adri or was that like you just like pilfered it <laughs> I'll off refresh your me. memory. Yeah. Uh, technically. Adri van Diemen. Adri van Diemen, Dutch coach who yeah. worked originally with what kind Greg of athlete again? No, was, no. Before cycling, he was into, he was training Dutch soldiers for the, geez, what? Special forces or? Yeah. Like what's yeah. the name of the city next to Amsterdam? Oh, Den Haag. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. He was hey, like training. He worked uh, in Den Haag, like training. Yeah. Right. Dutch special forces. Right. Troops or something yeah, to yeah, that yeah, degree. Yeah, I don't know. We, now I remember that. I yeah, might have romanticized right. that slightly because we were 20 at the time. But yeah, he trains ninjas basically. Right. So Audrey Vendeman, um, uh So the technical arrangement that you told me was um, I'm paying Adri and you pay me. And then I've okayed this with Adri that you're allowed to pay for the program. Now, whether or not you actually okayed it with Adri <laughs> or not, I have <laughs> yeah, no idea right. to this day. Yeah. <laughs> we can ask Adri. But uh, yeah, he probably like didn't – he was he probably thought he was coaching one person. I, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. But uh, – and that person's name was at – Three nine six seven four two at CompuServe.com. Uh, yeah, right. This is nineteen ninety five. Like the internet was born the day before. Yeah, we got it was one email a week with the training program. Yep, yep. And that was and there was there was wasn't a whole lot of conversation beyond that one email a week. No, but that that training program was like gold. Every day I'd you know yeah. read it and be like, holy crap, this is amazing. And also to set the stage, I think. After Greg LeMond, JV and I were the second and third people in the universe, or at least we in the United SRMs. States, to get SRMs. Yeah. So, which cost as much as more or more than many people's cars at that point. But, yeah. and we also didn't know about a thing called import taxes. So when they showed up, you're like, hey, we need an extra $567 or whatever. So she's like, ow. <laughs> but man, that thing was amazing. I mean, I like, there's no question. I learned so much about even just basic rules of pacing, which to be fair, a lot of writers now learn so quickly and so early in their careers, they probably don't really see them as lessons. Well, right? Actually, I would argue that a lot of the writers now that they're so focused on the numbers, they actually have no intuitional pacing whatsoever. And you actually have to teach them in time trialing, like, okay, on this part of the hill, you're going to need to go well over Yes. Your functional threshold. And at, at the top of the hill, I need you to actually go all the way to like, Sprint. you know, 600 yeah. watts. Right. And, and, and they're just like, what? Well, no, I can't do I'll that. And, yeah. Or whatever. And, and, uh, actually I, I, a lot mm. of times I see now that almost the over information really limits writers and you see writers that, that produce massive numbers that actually can't seem to figure out how to get it onto the road. Man. So true. I, this is one of my most frustrating points about modern metrics, like, because People get confused. I think they see the metric as the goal. Like, I don't give a shit how many watts you make. Uh, what place did you get? Did you win the race? Like, right. I don't care if you set a wattage PR when you won this road race or not. Yeah. Did you win the ra- Like, the competitive, the goal of competitive cycling is to win races. So, but people are so sensitive about it. It's a funny. Oh, it's like the a other dip measuring contest. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That yes, <laughs> exactly. That's the way I was going to describe it too. But you know, I, I made some stupid comment on Twitter. Well, actually, it wasn't a stupid comment. Actually, it was a well thought out comment. But it 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 received a lot of emotional responses. And all it was, was we were having one of these like virtual races. And which I, you know, just 
no no comment on virtual races. <laughs> and so, Agreed. you know, the the results in this race, it was sort of basically a one-hour uphill race, roughly. You know, I don't know. Maybe there were two climbs. or, But they were different than what you would expect. You know, they're like... I'm, you know, Freddie Ovid, I think, who who's a, a runner, did really well. And, you know, some guys who you think would be, you know, really great weren't so great. And it was just, it was different. And one of the guys who didn't do that well relative to what you'd think was Remco um, Evenepoel. Mm -hmm. And so I made a comment because observing Remco Evenepoel, Evenepoel on his bike, he's very aerodynamic. He has very flexible hips. He's got short arms. He has like narrow shoulders, wide hips. Like he's a classic, like very, I'm sure, I guarantee you he's low drag in his road position, in his time trial position, whatever. Like he's a low drag rider. So you put him in a race on a, you know, on an indoor trainer and his aerodynamic advantage has evaporated because all they're doing is some very crude measurement of drag based on height and weight and so, you know, he just didn't do that well in the race. And, and, and so my comment was, is interesting that this guy and this guy and this guy beat Evenepoel. My theory has always been that Evenepoel's advantage is not, or the reason he is such a great young cyclist is not that he um, has such an incredibly high power output, but that actually he's very efficient aerodynamically. And like, I, don't know, I get like it. 150 like hate tweets, mm -hmm. you know, from, I don't know, the how can you say he doesn't have good power? Well, no, I'm saying he's a fast bike racer, just not on a turbo trainer. Who cares? Like, I, uh, yeah. I have no idea why anyone would care whether or not he, mm. how he gets to be as fast as he is. But like somehow it was like offensive that I was calling him right. lower power output and more aerodynamically mm. efficient. Anyway. Yes, this is, I think I'll, I'll throw this out there. I think this is somewhat of an American value system, but it's shared in the world of cycling on the, on the whole that we, we virtuize or we glorify or, or iconize the rider with the big VO2. That's authentic. That yeah. means you're a real talented rider. And that's the first thing we all think of by default as a default mode network response. Like, is that person talented? It's like, what's their FTP? What's their VO2? That makes them good. If you're arrow, well, that kind of counts, but it's not really. And I've made several comments about that myself. You know, I'm like, oh, I built a whole air quotes cycling career off of having a hamster engine that's really aero. Like, yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Like, to me, this is part of what makes the game. And yeah, so there are many aspects and facets to talent. Yeah, but we weigh some more than others. What What's weird about that is that, like, if I were to say, Jonathan, you won that race because you out chess matched everybody and you were the brilliant tactician, like, people would pay that respect. But we all love to talk about the story that the yeah. the one time that the guy just ripped everyone off his wheel with right. brute force. And that's the most iconic victory you can make. And well, yes and no. I mean, to me, they both well, have their, you know, it's funny in the way I recruit, um, I almost overcompensate for that in that, like, I almost am skeptical of like riders that just produce massive numbers on straight roads. And I almost just say, yeah, Okay, but can they go around a corner? You're what I, you know, and and mm. um, well, this takes us right to Phil, perfect like textbook example of this problem. Yeah, so right? Phil Gaiman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I was a little bit that way. Like I wasn't, I was mm. kind of aerodynamic, but I had the big VO two, and and you know, and it's funny in that I'm almost like slightly too skeptical of riders that are similar to myself. You know, mm. that that I, that I tend to be like, yeah, but I, I don't know. That's a so you can see probably in your own career how that, on the one hand, that ability served you and then other times it limited you because 
we all tend to think that if a, if a rider's carrying around a big VO2, they can just do whatever they want in a bike race. But that's not really not the case. No, I like, mean, you have, you have a rider with a big VO2 and like poor hip flexibility. So yeah. they can't get down and really wide shoulders and they aren't smooth as regards bike handling. They don't know how to ride at the front of the Peloton. They Or they can't ride at the front without expending a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, so if they've got poor aerodynamics, poor bike handling ability, I mean, it really... You know, in in U.S. racing, or I should say, just racing worldwide that has big, wide roads and small pelotons, you can get away with that. Yep. And then as soon as you go to Europe, um, guys like that rate limiting factor. Yeah, they they, yeah. they aren't able to succeed. And what's interesting, you see it over and over again, is guys like that because they have the massive VO two and they were successful either in North America or maybe like in the you know in the Asian tour or, or whatever it is. Then they go to Europe and the roads are small and like they no longer have the bike handling ability to to stay at the front and or their aerodynamics aren't that good. And they have all these rate limiting factors that don't allow them to exploit this massive VO2. And what they do always is say, oh, it's because of doping. Like, oh, like everyone's yeah. doping. It's like, well, mm. yeah, or, maybe, but or maybe you can't go around a corner. <laughs> right. Or maybe but it's some that's, of both. But, you know, but it's it's uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's sort of like the default. Yeah. Default excuse. Yeah. Match. I think Phil's the textbook of that because he grew up in Florida and he was just like probably 5% stronger, a full 5% stronger than the next strongest guy in the whole state who was like 10% stronger than everyone else. So yeah. Phil and I like I coach Phil for years in case people don't know. I like Phil. He's a great guy. I think what he's doing now is entertaining and he's having fun with it. So good for him. And I also like the way Phil presents himself on social media in various aspects. Anyway, off in the weeds. But like he grew up in Florida so strong that he never had to learn full. Well, first of all, they don't have corners in Florida. No offense, right. Floridians. But secondly, like he never had to learn how to be, how to have any finesse. He never went to a Peloton with 50 guys who were as strong as him and had to figure out like, how do I beat these guys? He just, he could always brute force everyone. And when you're the only guy in the, in the ring with a massive roundhouse no. and you go naked battle to death every time, eventually you're just going to whip out that roundhouse and kick everybody in the teeth. mixed analogy but anyway so like phil gets to europe and there's 150 guys in the peloton who are plus or minus a tiny percentage of his raw ability but they can go around corners faster and they they have narrower shoulders and they have like they can move up in a peloton and and bump elbows and yeah yeah, and deal with bumpy roads and you know the funny funny the you know interesting and this isn't an american rider but a guy who was fascinating that it was a real head scratcher in figuring it out and you realize oh wow you know it's sort of the same thing is who he's European and he grew up doing Dutch races is Thomas Decker. Mm-hmm. Now Thomas Decker went from, he was so strong as a junior and so strong as a U23 that all he ever did, he even in crosswind races at like the Olympias tour, he could sit last wheel in the Peloton and wait for a hill or a crosswind and just rip past everyone up the side and go to the front. And then he goes into the pro ranks and within, you know, a year or two of in the pro ranks, he's doping. So, like, he can still just sit at the back. Right. And just rip up the side of the peloton and beat everyone, right? And so then he, you know, he serves his doping suspension. The guy has incredible numbers, like really, really, really great, you know, numbers. And so I say, okay, you know, listen, you are a massive physical talent. I'll give you a second chance to come back um, after your suspension. So he comes back. And he can't race like at all. And it's like, well, you know, Thomas, man, you're Dutch. Like, you know how to ride crosswinds. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, but uh, yeah. when you took away 
the fact that as a, a junior in U23 that he was just, he was naturally stronger than everyone else. And then as a pro, he was doping. So then he was still stronger than everyone else. He'd never learned how to race a bike ever. Yeah. Even though he's Dutch. Yeah. And so it was very quickly apparent, like, holy moly, like, He's missing some basic you, you, skills. You never, you don't, you don't mm -hmm. know how to ride in the front of a peloton. You, you know how to wait until the peloton splits down to 15 guys. And then you just kind of ride up to the 15 guys and like take right. a breather and then start racing from there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. But, but what, you know, as racing becomes tighter and tighter and the margins are smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, like that stuff, you know, yeah. it, it becomes impossible to overcome. You, mm. you know, you have to be an efficient bike racer, uh, to win. Yeah. It's, um, well, I guess we could, so wait, you gotta, we gotta go back to, we like gotta go the, back to that. The, well, to the kids yeah. Stuff, <laughs> well, we could synopsize that uh, to bring a story in from my younger racing with necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, I learned how to corner really fast when yeah. I was young cause I wasn't very strong and I snuck into a one, two race the last day of the super week series <laughs> when I was still a three. Right. And one day I just figured it out, I was like, if I just show up to the start line, I've already got a number. No one's even going to notice. There's 180 guys in this field. Right, right. And then, you know, 48 minutes later, I was 174th, like hanging on for dear life. And the only way I was going to survive that crit is to go through every corner about three miles an hour faster than everyone else. And right. then just get past, you know, on the straights. So this is how racers, I mean, to bring maybe part of that conversation full circles, like, when Phil Gaiman or Thomas Decker get into a race with a lot of corners, they've never learned, had to learn how to have those skills, those cornering skills or no. those Peloton negotiation skills. No, it was never a survival skill so for them. And then you, in, you in a, Yeah. In a certain respect, it's like someone who's always driven a Porsche, like you give them a Honda Accord and they just can't make it go around a corner fast. But right. when you build someone from the bottom up, ostensibly they have more skills. However, the flip side of that is you can't make a racehorse out of a donkey. Like, right. I could do VO2s to the end of the time and I'm never going to end up with a oxygen capacity of I mean, Thomas Decker. Right? A lot of this stuff, if you look back to when we were kids and, and again, like you and I were experimenting around as well. We were using SRMs a decade before anyone else really was, you know, it was fascinating about that. It was because both you and I sort of at very similar points in time realized like, wait, but there's, there is no metric that's telling us actually what we're doing. Like yes. there's heart rate that tells you what your response, how fast your, your response are, and there's speed that is sort of like the end product, but there's no anyway, right. which is, again, this is very, you know, for like 19 year old kids, not, um, I don't know, I don't know what was wrong with this, but, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff that we did back then that we were forced to sort of pre SRM, right? And we can get to Adri's training program in a minute because I feel like mm -hmm. so many of the things Adri had us doing were again, like over a decade in advance of the rest of the Agreed. world. But, um, so many things we did as juniors, i.e. like a six speed Regina freewheel that like, you know, you had six choices, but really only like four of them worked <laughs> and, you know, it was junior gearing. So like whatever it was, maybe a, a 17, 21 or maybe the 15, 19 or, and, yeah. and it forced you to be able to pedal at 140 RPM. Yes. And it forced you to be able to pedal at 53 RPM because there was, there were not many choices in certain circumstances. And, mm -hmm you were forced to vary power outputs a lot. You were without knowing it. We didn't know that that's what we were doing, but we were. Yep. You were forced to vary cadences a lot. And thus torque. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. To me, it's like, man, if I could get a hold of like a 12 year old and say, okay, listen, you know, you're going to have to use down tube shifters and a five speed Regina freewheel <laughs> for like the first five years of racing. Hmm. You know, like, I mean, that would yeah. be like the best foundation you could ever, because then the kid would, A, he'd have to go around the corners faster than everyone else because he'd never be in the right gear coming out of the corner. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he would be forced to, or he or she would be yep. forced to, you know, to be extremely adaptable with their RPMs. It would actually, it would force them to like really know how to, mm. to manage a bike, to finesse a bike. I mean, it, it's funny because so many guys that I've dealt with that kind of came in later with equipment, like they're so dependent on the equipment. Like they have no mm. like finesse. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, with, with modern day derailleurs, it's like it, for me, it's, I mean, it's almost impossible to drop a chain. Like it's it, re really difficult to drop a chain. You could do it, but it's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, but it's pretty hard. But like we would have, I mean, like Tom Danielson, he would drop a chain, like every race he'd drop a chain. And yeah. it was just because, He'd never had to finesse a bike ever. Mm -hmm. he, he just like from when he first started racing bike, the equipment was already sort of the technology was to a point where he was just used to just slapping on levers and, and the bike would work. And so like if there was ever a situation like he didn't know, like, no, you can't go from the 5327 into the 3927 like it, it was at full it, power just, yeah. <laughs> yeah my chain came off and then yeah. you know can we fire the mechanic no can't fire the mechanic <laughs> like that was you man right you know and but that's really you know that yeah. that's common nowadays so i don't know it, it's um it's just a funny I mean, I know, I know the equipment has to evolve and the technology has to evolve, but man, if, if you ever wanted to like coach, if you really wanted to, you know, produce like mm. a Tour de France champion and you could find like this specimen of a 12 year old to do that, I, I would, I'd give him a five speed Regina freewheel and some friction shifters. Maybe we could just trim down a modern cassette that actually shifts yeah. <laughs> to five gears. So we get the torque. And yeah. Have. But even the shifting, like it would teach him like, Hey, you gotta be a little delicate with that's this true. Stuff. That's like, true. You, got, yeah. you can't just always force it. Like I, you gotta, yeah. you know, I have vivid memories of you racing around on that carbon fiber gear chody with, if I remember correctly, you had a 41 tooth chain ring and like a 20 or 21 in the back. And what's funny is, you know, our local climb here, super flagstaff, which is... Yeah, we used to go that up. We used to that go up that climb in that 41, gear. 21, like, like no problem. I, I, I can't mean, even imagine that Dude, now. I can't either. <laughs> but also, modern riders can't quite conceive of that either. There are times when people are like, oh, I don't know if that's enough gear for me to make up that climb. Yeah, my like, wait a minute. race with Neil, I was in like a 36, 28. Yeah, 28 or 30 or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> some gear that just did not exist. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I remember sourcing, trying to source a 38 tooth chain ring. So we could have a 3825 for the Oregon Hill climb that went up the Magnolia road here locally, yeah. which is a ridiculously steep climb. Right. I mean, a 3825 now, like I, I mean, I could make it up the thing, but wow. Why? Yeah. No, that sounds you'd, terrible. You'd go a lot slower. I would and this go is, slower. this is one of these funny, this is also a funny thing that I, you know, in, that you watch on social media is that, um, you know, a lot of guys will say, you know, if someone goes up a climb really fast over in Europe, they'll say, oh, you know, that was only 20 seconds slower than during the doping era or whatever, right. or maybe 20 seconds fat, I don't know, whatever. So they must, you know, clearly the they're still era. doping. Yeah. Go back and look at a video of racing in 1994 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll quickly see like, it's like a floppy jersey that is clearly like retaining about freaking 
two pounds of liquid in the jersey. <laughs> They're riding at 57 RPM. Always. You know, just like stuff that we look at now and be like, oh, my Lord. That Why are you is, doing that? that this, this guy is not going to be. And they're, and by the way, they're like going just as fast as the guys do now. Right. You know. Right. Then, you know, when you put it in that perspective, it's like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> but then people, oh, yeah, so you're using a high cadence, high cadence. That's, that's just an excuse. No, no, high cadence actually works. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Uh, not to turn it into a Me to a point, which goes back point. to Adri. Right. Remember right, right. what the first yeah. thing that Adri had us do I, in 1994. He had us. So my recollection of this program, this will be great. This will be one of those like, yeah. what do you remember? What do I remember? I remember him giving us on day one, like every Tuesday was uh, lifting weights really hard, like oh, squats. Yeah. And, well, it was leg presses mostly and yeah. hamstring curls. So my legs yeah. were smashed. And then that yeah. afternoon we had to go out and do four by five yep. intervals as yep. fast as we could with five minutes recovery at 120 RPM average. Yep. Yep. And then commonly the next day was two by 20 at what would be in modern terminology called sweet spot. Right. Uh, like, you know, 20 Watts below yep. FTP yep. Yep. at yep. 60 RPM average. Yep. Yeah. And that was one, that was basically the core of his program. And when you could do that back those days up, back to back and not be absolutely throttled. It took me, I started his program January 1st of 95 and I was pretty out of shape. No. Uh, and man, it took me months before I could even do that whole thing like legit, legitimately yeah, yeah. and not be completely throttled or even finish the workouts. Yeah, no, he was, um, you know, so again, all these concepts that, that everyone thinks they're sort of, well, the, the first thing, his first thing was your pedaling frequency. Yep. He would never call it RPM or cadence. It was pedaling frequency. frequency. Your pedaling right. frequency needs to average 100 on all these training rides. And that doesn't sound like that high, maybe by nowadays standards. But like back then, doing 100 RPM for like a three hour training ride was, yep. it just, it felt absurd. Yeah. Then this, this, the second thing was, you're right, is that it was, he did reverse periodization. Mm -hmm. Reverse periodization in that starting in November, he said, okay, the first thing we're going to do is increase your VO2 max and your ability to produce maximum torque. So mm -hmm. actually three things. We're going to increase your ability to, to be efficient at high RPM. We're going to increase your, your, your VO2 max, and we're going to increase your ability to produce maximum torque. So weightlifting, yep. high RPM riding, five-minute intervals. Yep. And as you would well remember, nobody was doing five-minute intervals in November in that era. No. Like that was seen as absolutely insane. People were like, you'll burn out. Yeah, I'm going to go hike Sanitas, dude. Yeah. Which is what I was doing the previous years right. till that point because I was yeah. afraid of burning out. You were told that if you, Janu what what's that saying? Like December champion equals January floppiness or yeah, June. Whatever, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Something. So, right. And so, I to be fair, like not to mislead anyone, but yeah, if you do five minute VO twos all year round, yeah, it's not you'll probably work. be fried. Yeah, yeah. But it was. But it's interesting if I look at, you know, how we do things now. You know, there's a lot of reverse periodization. There's a lot of, you know, how do you develop maximum torque? There's, you know, um, I mean, Audrey was talking about with regards to weightlifting is that, you know, we need to create an environment where the concentric and eccentric motion of your muscles is collapsing the vascular system inside of your muscles that's going to teach your body to be able to, like, grab that oxygen out of yes. the collapsed vascular While the fibers system. are contracted. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, which is what the know, Moxie measures, right? Yeah. The same concept. It's, yeah. it's how low does your O2 saturation go 
under maximum efforts when yeah. your muscles are completely contracted. So this is yeah. stuff that you know, right. is much more common nowadays. And and was the whole background of you know Michele Ferrari telling Lance Armstrong you need to pedal at a higher pedaling frequency to reduce you know when he was racing it was to reduce the maximum contractile force so therefore the oxygen delivery could be better right you know i mean we can talk about lance and ferrari all day long if you want and th- you know there's but like that theory of ferrari's was spot on mm-hmm. and it wasn't something that a lot of other people were doing in that point but that mm. when ferrari started doing that with lance that's 5 6 years after Right. You and I were doing that. But the whole point of it, I guess, the, the to me, like the overarching theme there is that I miss having, uh, you, you know, junior and U23 riders coming up that are clearly, you know, haven't been coached and have figured this stuff out on their own and and have like a curiosity about the training. and Instead of which being is, so robotic. They're, yeah, exactly. Which, yeah. Is, is, which is uncommon now. Right now it's, it's, you know, the level of professionalism, even in the U23 programs, when I say professionalism, I just, just from the coaching standpoint is just, you know, it, it's, oh, it's at a much, much, much higher level. And I'm not necessarily saying that's bad. It's just that, I think what we're going to see in the next generation or this generation of pros is that, you know, guys are, they're going to be at the top of their career at 22 years old. Mm. And, you know, they may be able to maintain that until they're 30 or whatever it is. But like, but the whole, oh, Mm. he's a 21 year old and he's winning all these big races. So that by the, by the time he's 28, he's going to be killing everyone. I don't think that's going to apply anymore for, you know, I I think what you see is what you're going to get at a much earlier age with guys now. And so you're saying you think that because of all the data that riders are being subjected to when they're younger and that they're refining, they're optimizing yeah, things on kind of too steep of a curve early. early. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, optimized interesting. way, 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 way early. Yeah. And that's just so human nature, right? Like if we can optimize it, we should do it now, yeah. which isn't yeah. necessarily which, arguably always the case. Again, like if I could have all the time in the world and a 12-year-old that I knew like had the engine, which I don't know how you determine that they definitely had the, you know, middle finger measurement? coding them or something. Yeah. Right. But like um, if, that, if you could develop that scenario – Seriously, I'm not joking. When I, I Regina five speed freewheel and and down tube shifters, and they just nope, you can't. And you no know, power meter. Yeah, and you have to <laughs> ride that way until you're 18. And on your 18th birthday, like we're going to give you a power meter and DI2. Now that's an idea. <laughs> Here we go, USAC. Let's get some rules going. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have this discussion. I just did a little mini episode the other day where I drew a diagram and I drew a triangle. And in that triangle, I put a P for power and an HR for heart rate and an RPE for relative perceived exertion. But in the middle of the triangle is a question mark. And I think in my mind, this is the model that I use, sort of like a crude Venn diagram. Like all these metrics that we're using to go around and around in circles on this triangle are really asking the question. We all do the same thing as athletes or we should be doing the same thing as athletes. The moment you get up and you swing your legs out of bed and your feet hit the ground, you stand up for the first time, every competitive athlete instantly makes the same calculation. How hosed am I from yesterday's training? Yeah, yeah. Am yeah. I smashed? Am right. I fresh? How is my nervous system responding? How sore right. are my legs? How sore are my muscles? Because Which, what those if, metrics if you, are, if you have you know an aura ring and a whoop and you right. and you have training data from the day before and you have recent pematology and but like mm-hmm. you're going to second guess your feeling. Well, or maybe you'll maybe it'll be confirmed if you're if you're doing it backwards. Yes, yeah. I like that's I think that's what we're both saying is that. 
what what's missing is the writers, some writers don't know that those numbers are there to, for one purpose only, which is to refine their instinct into themselves. Right. For me, the purpose of sport is alignment with knowledge of self and intent. Right. That's what we're doing. So in order to know yourself, we're just using power and aura rings to figure out what's going on. That's the point of these metrics, people. It's not to replace what's happening. It's not a proxy for human experience. This is what sport is about. And, you know, when you're 87K into a road race or 42K from the finish of a 200 and something K road race, and you're in the breakaway and you've been there for 50K and some guy attacks on a roller at that moment, there is no metric to tell you, like, should I respond no. There's no heart rate number. There's no power number. There's no like wattage prime number that can t or should try to tell you whether or not you respond in that moment. It is straight guttural instinct. Someone just stabbed you in the jugular. How are you going to respond? That's a bike race. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, you know, what I witness is that we, you know, the, the crew of directors on, you know, on my team that are all about our age roughly um, or a little bit younger, but they're, they're still of the same generation that instinct which was sort of that was the one thing we did learn when we were 16 years old um we have to teach guys that at 25 yeah. you know they they know the numbers inside and out they know that whatever that they need to have a glucose drink with branched chain amino acids after hard training they i mean you know these are yeah. Like all that stuff has been ground into them. The like, what do I do when some guy attacks has not like that mm -hmm. hasn't been taught to them. We're missing some old school. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Are you paying attention, writers? <laughs> JV's dropping you some nuggets in here. All right. So to go rewind just a bit, maybe we can maybe we can just tell a few stories. And if they're lame, Jana can just cut them out. But I think people might find them relatively entertaining. I mean, I have memories of us driving around all over the western half of the United States going to obtuse bike races in my yeah. white Honda Accord and yeah. sometimes in the Volvo. I remember us going to tour the Gila when we were juniors and me thinking that I could squeeze through a six-inch gap in a well, field sprint. I was going to mention that when you were talking about, you know, that you were like, okay, well, I'm not that strong, so I'm just going to have to learn how to go around corners faster than everyone else. Mm. And you know, for the most part, that was good. Every once in a while, it kind of bit you in the ass. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I definitely a, fell down in a few corners. Yeah. No question. I mean, it's how you learn stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that tour of the healer. Like you, you, <laughs> you peeled off pretty much all the skin you had. I did. And then I was like, I feel fine. I'll be good in the next day road race. And no, not so much. Yeah. But then that turned out to be the road race of death and destruction anyway. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first year, I believe, they had a juniors race. And they basically gave... It was a Gila monster. It's it, that, was the Gila it was monster the Gila monster for like 16-year-old kids. With like my you got 40, fourth. With my 41-21. Yeah. <laughs> you got fourth walking to the line yeah, of the yeah. last climb. Yeah. <laughs> like the field... I think that a 41-21 just people. didn't pull it off anymore. <laughs> anyway, the, there were some some lumps for the race promoters back then too. Yeah. I think. But good adventures. And we did the 89er stage race. Remember that one? Yeah. This is in Norman, Oklahoma, middle of nowhere. Yeah. But I remember that was whatever yeah. the classic crosswindy, like time trial crosswind criterion. Mm -hmm. Road race around, it went around this giant lake and yeah. way out in the middle of these cornfields and stuff. Yeah. yeah. That was good vintage racing, man. And then there were, there were all these stage races I tell people about now that they don't know it existed. There was mammoth stage race, there used to be so many beautiful five-day stage races in the U.S. Like, I'm sorry, racing has, road racing, I I hate to say it out loud, man, but it is such a brontosaurus at this point. It's like going extinct. Yeah. We have like it's true. 
we had Mammoth. We had Casper. What was the one in Bisbee? The yeah, Volta de Bisbee. Oh, okay, Volta right. Bisbee. And then there was the Tour of the Future, which was like the kids' version. Yeah. Right. I mean, Volta de Bisbee. This is like where I cut my teeth in racing and like really yeah. had to battle my own demons and shadow and be like, do I want to do this? Because I remember going really, really hard in the first year I went there in that road race and looking up and seeing like 160 riders in front of me on the climb, and that'll crack. Well, it cracked me. I don't. But know, it was well. I mean, the thing of it was is that. The, that the you know back then there were no u23s no so u.s racing was one it was more robust in the number of races that you could do and two you know the the one two pro races i mean i write a little bit about this in, in my book that like at mammoth that year i mean you had you know the russian Bobrick. national team who yeah. were like you know they were all olympic gold medalists and i mean these were like the superstars and then you had the super Montgomery professional team which you know, that year, like they raced Tour de Suisse and yeah. whatever they were, I mean, they were at Mammoth. And Jonathan Vodders, 19 year old kid from Boulder or from Denver, Colorado. Right. And actually 17 then, but the, yeah, there you go. We could sign up to these because they were one, two pro races. And as long as you were a category two or above, yep. even as a junior, you could sign up and get in and race them and race so far over your head that like <laughs> the lessons learned were hard and fast. And, yes. and I, and you know, again uh the juniors you see coming up now they don't they don't have those opportunities like their training is 10 times as optimized as our as ours was but like their first experience with like real racing is you know when they go to the u23 house and you know with the national team in europe like that's the first time that they get you know clobbered over the head now somehow the u.s you know produced the junior world champion so it can't be all bad what's going on nowadays but it's it's just an interesting i think as a as a broader section, you know, we we just had a more sink or swim type development. I think that's a good good way to describe it. Yeah, and yeah, and the, and there were a mm. lot more races for us to do. There really were, and they were driving distance races, and they were races that, you know, I mean, Colby and I would drive and like either like find a hotel or sleep in the car or beside the car or on top of the car, <laughs> and you know, and then do the race, and and it was you know, our pre-race meal was a breakfast burrito and our post-race meal was a regular burrito or and, pizza hut or yeah, or pizza hut. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so that, you know, that sort of, um, let's borrow mom's car or your car, whatever it was, and like drive all over the nation and stay in ratty hotels or sleep in the back of a Honda and, you know, compete with guys that were ostensibly professionals you know, that's, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's a bummer that that's not an experience that probably any juniors really get to have anymore. Yeah. It, uh, it helps you appreciate things, I suppose. Yeah. In a way, cause you have to earn it, but I won't, I won't go so far as to say that I was literally sprinting for my rent check like Matt Koshara was at times. Right. Uh, I think there was, oh, a it wasn't just Matt Koshara. It was a lot of the guys we were I, racing with. Were, agreed. They were sprinting for their rent check. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was the, I mean, yeah, that was a lot. I mean, basically the whole of team Shackley was. <laughs> racing for their rent checks. Yes. I mean, except for me and I've raced that team for four years, but yeah. 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 Interesting. Uh, so you've coached a lot of riders over the years. Mm. Some of them that come to mind. <laughs> some of them worked and some of them didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> sort of like the five speed Regina Freewheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think Sometimes any, it any, works. I don't think any five speed Regina Freewheel really ever really worked. worked. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Never mind the bad. Yeah. Analogy. Yeah. 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 Um, yes, we used to have to only have five gears in the back. For those of you who are yeah. wondering, we're not even, we're, that's not a, 
an exaggeration. It's not a joke. Not an embellishment. Um, let's see. You you coached Ian McGregor. Yeah. You coached Timmy for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. With those guys, I was more like a consultant. You know? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, they're yeah. they're both super smart kids. So right. You know, they they were figuring stuff out on their own pretty mm. fast. Dan Bowman. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, yeah. Blake Caldwell, right, for a while? Did you uh, Yeah, yeah, for a little while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of you following the right era of the sport, you'll know who these people were for sure. Yeah, and then then there was a long time where, like, I kind of didn't coach anyone because it was too much of a conflict of interest, you know? And, and it's still – and so then I – you know, because I was like, I was hiring and firing people. Right. Like, it's pretty hard to fire somebody you're coaching. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, – but then, you know, sort of in the very lean, lean, lean years of Cannondale, uh, like 2015, 16, 17, I started coaching guys again because I was like, okay, like how do I make – like this team is as bare bones as it's going to get in the world tour. Like how do I actually be as impactful as I can be, mm-hmm. you know, given my specific strength set? And so I was like, oh, well, okay, I can coach guys. And and I – you know, and that was – you know, I, I coached Dylan Von Barlow, which that went great, and Tom Yelta Slagter, and, you know, that went great. And Joe Dombrowski, there were times that went great and times it didn't go so great. Mm. Lawson Craddock, yeah. that didn't go great. I mean, I I have all – I mean, Lawson's still on the team and have all the respect in the world for him. But, like, you know, sometimes it's just like – I was being overly experimental with him uh. because my idea with Lawson is this guy can get top five in a grand tour. And I was overestimating his ability, and I, but I was I was like training him like Chris Froome trains, you know, and it was yeah. just killing the poor guy. You know? It was too much. Yeah, it was way too yeah. much. Um, but you know, so some of those guys worked out, and some of the I mean, I'm really I mean, I'm most proud actually of with with Langeveld, Sebastian Langeveld, and Dylan Van Barl because they both you know been uh, well. I guess Dylan wasn't quite podium at Tour of Flanders. I almost said he was fourth, um, and then you know Langeveld was third, and Perry Roubaix. Yeah. And, you know, those are races that clearly I've never even done those races, but like those guys, they totally entrusted me with their with their coaching to, you know, because those were their those were their objective races mm-hmm. for the entire year. And we every single time since I've worked with them, we absolutely nailed those objectives as far as um, their form went. You know, Pierre Roland, Coach Pierre Roland, again, Pierre. You know, Pierre has, has never been quite as good as he was, you know, in 2012. And that's a long time ago. He was just, I don't know, a younger rider, fresher. But we, d- but he did have a bit of a renaissance, you know, in 2017 where he won a stage as a Giro and won Route de Sud and, you know, was really competitive in, in the mountain stages in the Giro and then was super helpful to Rigo getting second in the Tour that year. And I, I was, you know, I was really proud of that um, coaching mm. Pierre that year as well. That was, yeah. So, um, so big picture what have you learned as a coach? Like, like, I mean, I'll, I'll say it right alongside you. Like I've had some coaching experiments or clients that have, I've experimented with because really I think anyone who tells you coaching is not experimental is kind of lying yeah. a little bit. No, like, no, coaching so is a like black world box tour athletes. It's like, Oh, you do a little experiment. It doesn't work out. You, 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 you. Well, right. It's their livelihood. So yeah. you're, you, <laughs> there are times when you make more of a calculated risk and yeah. less of a calculated yeah. risk, depending on where the rider is and what yeah. they need and where they are in their career and what they've yeah. got coming up. Right. Like yeah. things are going relatively well and they've had an established pattern and they want to bring you on. You've learned that pattern and maybe you yeah. stick well, pretty well within that, but you yeah. push them in little bits. So what are your big lessons? Like, like I've had some big lessons coaching. What do you feel are your big successes like and what I'm looking for is like maybe insights into certain phenotypes of writers or personalities or psychology of writers Oof. versus those that have 
kind of flopped. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, a good example of that and trying to sort of evolve a writer and then what your idea of what the writer is. And this is where you get into trouble as being their boss mm-hmm. and their coach, ah. um, which is something that I've always had to deal with. So like Joe Dombrowski, the first year I coached Joe Dombrowski, you know, things were a year and a half or whatever. Things went great. Podium on a few mountain stages in the Giro. He won Tour of Utah. You know, he, he was ripping along really well. Like he was coming back from his iliac artery surgery. And so it's, the improvement was just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, he but, was untouchable at Utah that year, if I remember yeah. right. Yeah. So, but I was observing him. And like what Joe wanted, Joe wanted to be a GC rider. Um, and so he was like, I want to figure out my time trial position. And I want to, and I because we were testing him on the track and like Joe at the same weight as Rigoberto Oran, I think it may be Joe's like one or two kilos heavier than Rigo to go 50 K an hour on a road bike. Joe has to produce 80 Watts more. Well, you can mess with his position all day all long. You want. Yeah. He, it was 80 Watts more, right? Bony shoulders. So I just sort of was like, yeah. eh, I don't know about GC. Right. Like, I don't know that I, you know, and, and maybe, you know, this is one of these, like, probably should have, I mean, I did have this discussion with Joe, but maybe I should have had it three or four times, you know, uh-huh. I started thinking what I see with you, Joe, is let's forget about GC. You don't position yourself well in the Peloton. You don't time trial. Well, forget about GC. Let's focus on mountain stage wins. Mm-hmm. So we're going to focus on getting you into the breakaway. Yeah. And once you're in the breakaway, then you win out of the breakaway. Right. Mm. Well, so. One of the key things that I realized why, why Pierre Roland was so successful in breakaways is that he just didn't fatigue at all. He could be in a 200K breakaway. This is this is Thomas DeGent, one-on-one, mm-hmm. right? 200K out there all day long, and there's just zero drop-off in <laughs> his physical capability. Pierre, you put him in a 15K time trial, he's a very mediocre bike racer. You put him in a 230-kilometer breakaway, right. and he's a very, very exceptional bike racer. Right. Same thing with Thomas DeGent. So this is my mindset was like, okay, this is where Joe's going. Mountain stages, you got to slow the speed down because he's not that aerodynamic, but like mountain stages, long breakaways, he's going to win. So, so at that point in time, I was also talking a lot to Inigo San Milan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Inigo's super into his, you know, high zone two training, which for right. those of you who know Inigo, I mean, this theory makes a ton of sense. It's essentially like you, you need to be riding – doing a, a huge volume of training in like what, what, what Inigo would say is right at the threshold of where you switch over from slow twitch muscle fiber utilization to starting to recruit fast twitch fiber utilization. So it's like fat max. Which also coordinates with, yeah, substrate utilization, right? So it, maximizing fat. Yep, exactly. So it's, it's fat max. It's, it's yeah. like, so it's the, it's the, it, there's a point, like if you ever do a VO2 max test where they, show your expired gases and all that. They'll show you a point at which, you know, you're burning more and more and more fat as the intensity gets higher. And then all of a sudden your fat starts dropping off as your burning of sugars increases exponentially. Right. Right. And so that point, the maximum fat, which, you know, in a typical rider, this is like, this is 15% below your 20 minute FTP roughly. Mm-hmm. I mean, somewhere around there, maybe 20%. Anyway, so I thought with Joe, well, what do you do in these long, you know, four hour breakaways? You're at this like fat max a lot. Yeah. You're sitting there for hours and whoever uses the least glycogen and the least sugar, 
during these long breakaways, whoever uses the least amount of that and the most amount of fat, whoever, whoever touches their fast twitch fibers the least in the four hours leading up to the point where the breakaway splits apart and who wins the race, that guy's going to win. And so right. I'm like, okay, Joe, we're going to do a ton of an Ego San Milan, Style. which with Joe is yeah. like 300, 320 watts, right? Yeah. So yeah. Joe's just kind of sitting there and I, we're doing like these big, and Joe got incredibly efficient. Mm. And we sent him to Perry Nice, the first part of the year and like, you know, hit a crosswind 10K into the race and like he couldn't, I mean, whoosh, <laughs> mm. you, goodbye. Right. He was incredibly fatigued. He had no snap. Uh, um, he was he was cooked. I mean, he was he was he was very efficient. He would have been great at doing these like Lachlan Morton like seventeen yeah. hour records or like right, Everstinger. Mean, he he would have won yeah. race across America right easy. But Perry Nice not so good. Missing too much snap. So okay, let me ask you a question then. Do you think it's when you were doing the Fat Max training were you actually also manipulating the substrates that he was taking in before the rides? Was he, were you encouraging him to eat like four eggs and bacon and yeah, stuff? Yeah, we were doing we were right. doing some dietary manipulation. So yeah. do you think that his carbohydrate metabolism and his carbohydrate processing enzymes were too shut down? Yeah. 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 No, that's exactly. And, that, and yeah. that's what happens. Like as guys, as you get them better, I mean, this is, you know, as you get guys better and better and better and better at burning fat, they get worse and worse and worse and worse at burning carbohydrates. So like, right, right. you know, when you see guys getting super, super, super lean, you know, that, that usually they're getting worse and worse at burning carbohydrates. This is where, yeah. you know, and this is something that just really pisses me off about um, the modern WADA code. Sorry, it's going on a little bit of tangent is that, you know, under the World Anti-Doping Association code, the utilization of, of cortisone is totally legal out of competition, Right. Right. And like, of course, you can also get a TUE for it in competition. Well, you want a short circuit, you know, that whole balance right there. Like, so you're teaching your body to use fat better and better and better. But like, because you're doing that, you can't get to your turbocharger very uh -huh. easily, the carbohydrate. Yeah. Yeah. Throw some cortisone in the mix and it, it'll just pop up the glycogenesis really easily. And you yeah. can, you can use Do the both. carbohydrate just fine now. So you can train for five weeks straight, just focusing on zone two, make yourself super efficient, keep using cortisone. And then pop into the race and you haven't lost your turbo button. Exactly. Uh, and that's, and it's, yeah. it's super unfortunate that, you mm -hmm. know, that a drug that should be for therapeutic use, i.e. knee injuries, et cetera, or asthma. Or if you whatever. get stung in the eye by a bee, for or example. You, the eye. Wasp, you know, right? and, and, and listen, you know, like back then I, when I got stung in the eye, I was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I can't take cortisone because at that point in time you, you could take cortisone, but you could only get a TUE if it was like a knee injury, not for an allergic reaction. It's stupid. Right. But now where they've just opened it up it's like ugh, you know i mean because then it's not to say it's the perfect hack but you know it's like if this is this is the big you know the the, the why i really respect what the mpcc is doing i don't know if you're familiar the movement for the cyclisme which is roger leger my old boss mm -hmm. well i mean mpcc does a lot of things but the meat of what the MPCC does is that, you know, they take, um, cortisol blood tests of the riders. So your natural cortisol, if your yeah. cortisol is incredibly suppressed, it means you're taking exogenous cortisone. And basically mm -hmm. the MPCC, then since they have no oversight, this is a voluntary club that you sign up for. They just say, if a rider's cortisol is suppressed below a certain point, um, for health reasons, you shouldn't start the race. Right. Well, of course, there's a little more implied in all of that, but right. like, you know, 
It's like the old Hematocrit 50 limit. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, is, is actually it's, it's very effective. And like why that wouldn't be, you know, when I see a team or a rider drop out of the MPCC, I'm always really disappointed in that because, you know, you're kind of like, come on, man. Like, the, like just, you know, let's, let's, mm. let's move this forward in a positive direction. But anyway, just so you know, that's the, yeah. you know, because having experience, I got Joe to be incredibly efficient and like, you know, had we just, you know, jammed a bunch of cortisone into him, that probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been a problem. Him. I would yeah. have fixed it, you know, but like right. end of the day, you know, it, it took months to sort mm. of unwind that issue and get him back to normal. And mm. it was a, it was a, it was an experiment that was well-intentioned trying to get him to like win stages as opposed to finish, you know, 18th yeah. overall. Yeah. And, you know, it backfired. You push the right levers, you just maybe push them a little too hard. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so That's right. yeah. I, this yeah. is what I think is so fascinating about cycling in particular because there's so many nuances to success in the sport, right? And no matter how many, it, and also at the same time, in some ways, science, like cycling is the most science-dominated sport right now because yeah. we we can measure everything so much with all our power meters and all our dorky gadgets. So on the one hand, we have all the science, but it's also one of the hardest sports to quantify. I mean, put someone in a marathon, like, yeah, it's hard to quantify that too. It happens in the real world, but there are so many less variables predicting the outcome of a marathon race or even a swimming yeah, race than yeah. there are a cycling race, oh, especially no, a mass start. Variables. Right. And so, there's infinite, you know, you have to be good at sprinting for 10 seconds. And Well, that's why I'm, that's yeah. one of the many variables, like, Dombrowski, like, okay, the guy's the most efficient zone two engine in the world, but he gets popped in the first 10 minutes of Perry Nice because he can't make yeah. 600 watts, you know, in a crosswind. Well, the funny, the, the funny thing is about that is that, so using that same, cause I was super into like an ego that year. Um, and, and I still, you know, really respect that whole, his whole ideas that I was using those same training approaches to our classics, i.e. Dylan and Sebastian, who their two goals were Flanders and Roubaix, right? Or seven-hour races. Yep. So in those guys, because they're they're big, muscly dudes that have a lot of fast-twitch fiber, you inherently, know. Inherently. Yeah. Inherently. For them, it worked like a charm. So, yeah. Like, all is, of a sudden, yeah. it was like they were, like, and, and, and you couldn't see it coming with both of them. It was like they would do, like, E3 Harobeko, which is, like, a week before Flanders, but it's a four-and-a-half-hour race, not a six-and-a-half-hour race. Right. And they'd be, like, good at E3 Harobeko. They'd finish, like, eighth or, yeah. you know, twelfth or whatever. But, like, you'd get them into Flanders, and, and you could just see all just of a sudden the last, the last 20K, they yeah. were, like, you know, right there. Right. And then, no, they don't have the, you know, the same kind of massive motor that – whatever like Matthew Vanderpool has or whatever but like but they were able to be there in that then the waning you mm -hmm. know 20 30 minutes of Flanders and Roubaix because we had developed this ability so efficiently but like since these guys are you know they're both Dutch they grew up sprinting out of corners over and over and crossings whatever else like whereas Joe when you sort of took away that mm -hmm. You know, you overtrain the 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 zone two stuff, and you undertrain the twenty second snaps. He can't stay in the crosswind. Right, right. With these guys, it it made the crosswinds early in the race mm. a little more annoying. But it didn't really, you know, they were yeah. like, oh, I used to be able to come out of corners a little bit better than right. I do now. But eh, whatever, doesn't matter. I get passed by one or two guys. Yeah. In the end, it, it doesn't didn't, matter. But, yeah. but like, I'm so much stronger in the last twenty k. So, that was totally worth it. So the big picture then is that this is a beautiful takeaway of like. As coaches, we have to apply very carefully the training paradigm to the phenotype of the rider and the characteristics of the rider. Yeah. You know, in this case, only physically, of course, psychologically as well. 
But to make sure that we're getting the desired result out of the rider, right? I mean, I remember Phil gaming complaining one point because he's like, okay, you've given me like 192 sprints in four days of training or something ridiculous, which I had. And then, you know, the, that year he went on to beat Mansebo at Redlands. And we all know what the finishing circuit of Redlands looks like. I'm sure every single listener knows what that looks like. Um, he said sarcastically. Um, it starts on a criterium course and then you go up and do this hilly circuit through these mountains above the town of Redlands. And then you come down and you do like four or five circuits yeah. on the crick course. Yeah. And it's a pointy little crick course, man. It's like a triangle with like a trapezoid glued to it. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, eight corners and a couple of them are greater than 90 degrees. I mean, it's very glycolytic, very sprinty, very surgy. Yeah. And Phil Mansebo attacks Phil 99 times and burns off all his teammates. And they come to comes, I mean, literally this is down to the second and Phil's sprinting out of the corner, like barely hanging on for dear life. Like, he won the race by half a second or something totally ridiculous. Yeah. And this is, I mean, Phil's nature, Phil is for the purposes of our discussion, philosophically, he's very much like Joe Dombrowski, like very steady state, very VO2 dependent. Right. And if we just trained his, and I'm not saying like, look, half my early coaching successes were like, you know, good intent and reasonable science and, and experience combined with just blind luck. I mean, I'll be honest. That's how coaching works half the time. You're like, hey, that turned out really well. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm cautious not to give myself too many pats on the back because we all know that coaching is a black box problem. Like right. you put in an input. That input is training. Yeah. Right? And then something happens <laughs> in yeah. the middle. That's the black box part. And then right. boom, out the other end, this this thing comes, this result, this this well, rider ability. To, you know, the, the, with, you have to take the individual into, into account. I mean, this is a, like Joe, for instance. Yeah. You know, Joe never said anything to me other when I said, how are you feeling, Joe? Good. Mm. The answer was always good. Blood from a stone. I, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think to, he, he he's a very like he's almost, he almost has like the mind of an engineer. You know, he, he's like, well, OK, like my leg didn't fall off today, so I'm mechanically good. Yeah. So the answer is good. Right. Right. You know, there's not this like subtle, like, yeah, but I got this. Whereas like mm. Sebas Langeveld, yeah. you know, highly, highly intelligent and very intuitive, you know, Dutch racer who grew up in the Dutch racing, you know, that just that, that intuitive style of racing that they have there. Sebas kind of lets me know like everything about like, well, you know, my wife and I, we got in a fight and my kid has a cold and, yeah. um, you know, and, and he'll just make the call. Like if he doesn't think the training's right, he, you know, mm. he's an older rider. He's not afraid of me as his boss. Like, he, you know, he, like he's sort of at the end of his career. So he's just like, listen, I want to win Roubaix. And I know the only way I'm going to ever win Roubaix is by being real crafty about it and, you know, whatever else. So he's like, I'm going to trust you. But he's like, but if I think it's wrong one day, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to tell you to go get lost. Right. And, you know, like with, with, uh, Joe and Lawson, they never did. They did exactly what I told them to the T and never said anything about their personal lives. Never, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so, so yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, and I crushed both of them. Right. So we can break riders down based on their kind of phenotype of compliance with training, right? There are those that could be turned like rebels, like, yeah, you give them a training program and they might just crazy Ivan it and do whatever they want. Right. Then there are those who are a little more compliant, like they're looking to be told what to do. Right. I think there are certain athletes who want accountability. They want, they want to, they, they're almost, you could argue looking for a parental model in coaching, like do this. Right. And then when they write you comments, you get things like, were these efforts okay? Right. And my response, it took me a long time to figure this out. Like I, your efforts are fine. I didn't even look at the numbers and they're fine. I don't right. like, 
I'm not your dad. Right. This is up to you, at, right? And it took me a long time to kind of get my head wrapped around the fact that there are riders who want that compliance. And what you do with that, once you figure that out, is a whole other psychological discussion. I mean, let's be real. Like, if you're coaching people and you think you're not a psychologist, sorry. Yeah, no, your, your <laughs> you biggest are, job is being a psychologist. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there are riders who will kind of do their own thing and, and have accountability or authority to like you're describing with Sebus, like right. on the day, if he's supposed to go out and do some ridiculous hard ride and he knows that he didn't sleep well because his kid had a cold and kept him up all night or his whatever happened, yeah. his smoke alarms went off or something, then he knows he's smart enough to go, I'm going to make the call on this. I'm going to own it. I'm just going to ride easy and I'll write GB a comment later tonight. And right. then we can discuss whether I'm going to do it tomorrow or whatever. So I think that's something to be aware of in terms of how you relate to your riders and what kind of relationship you have there. I mean, I'm sure, do you think that there are times when, when you coached Lawson and Joe Dombrowski that look, there's gotta be an inherent conflict of interest there because if I'm Joe and I, you give me some big hard ride and I go out and I make it only halfway through and I'm just completely shattered. Right. I mean, and, so and I'm your boss and I'm the guy. Well, that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. So you're, you're the guy who's responsible for rehiring my contract, right. but yep. also choosing whether or not I'm going to start the yep. Giro or the tour right. this year. Yep. Like I can tell you right now, if I'm yeah, your basic human psychology, yeah, I'm like, dude, everything's perfect. Yeah. I smashed that ride today. Right. I'll figure out how I'm going to upload the power file later. So this is, this is what, <laughs> so this is why I've kind of come to the conclusion that the, 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 the riders that I'm willing to take on my team, because I'm not, I shouldn't really be coaching guys on other teams. <laughs> um, <laughs> the riders I'm willing to take on my team that I coach, I almost sort of have to pre-vet them in that, like they have to be really hard characters. They have to be smart. Um, they have to be very self-confident. Um, they have to be curious about the training and not, not, they cannot be just someone wanting to be told what to do. Um, th if they're fearful of me from the position of ultimately the general manager of the team, it won't work. It's not going to work. So yeah. like with Sebas and Dylan, they were both that they had that character. They were yeah. very strong characters. Yeah. Um, and so it worked really well because they did not fear me. They, you know, they pushed back on me when they needed to be pushed back. They weren't worried about the race selection for this or that or the other thing. They weren't worried about their contract. I mean, I'm sure, you know, every year it would get a little awkward some at certain points in the year when their contracts would come up mm. and I'm talking to their agent sort of behind their back and they're, and the, you know, yeah. but ultimately it didn't affect the training. But I think, that's the exception. Like that's probably 10% of the riders I have. 90% of the riders I have um, can't operate like that with their boss. And so mm -hmm. I can't coach them, even right. though like I look at a lot of their training programs on training peaks because, you know, I spend a good part of every day just going through like, you know, riders on my team. And, and as I go through the files, I just, you know, I'm like, Oh God, why are you, you know, I, I, I could see all these mistakes and I can, make comments here and there, but ultimately like I'm sort of a distant consultant. And if I make those comments too strongly, it'll freak out the rider and they'll totally change everything they've been doing with their coach just to like make me happy. And like, that's no good. Right. You know? right so, right. So I basically have to kind of just, you know, observe bite my tongue and, and yeah. observe. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Or maybe call the coach and have a conversation. With them. Yeah. And, and that sometimes works too. Like right. it, it depends on the coach, but again, that yeah. gets tricky as well because then the, the, you know, the coach clearly wants to have, you like them yes. so they can get more riders on your team. And you know, there's certain guys like, like Jim Miller, for instance, I can always have a straight conversation with Jim Miller, Jim Miller, like 
you know, he, he doesn't. It's a Wyoming cowboy. Love yeah, that exactly. Like he, he doesn't, he's <laughs> yeah. not scared of me in any way, shape or form. So like, that's a guy that I would have no problem saying, Hey, have you thought about this? Right. You know, my passion, I love coaching guys. Um, managing a team can be at moments great. And at moments, I wouldn't say that it's, it's, it's more of a job than a passion in a mm -hmm. way, but like coaching guys is a real passion. And so of course I want to do more of it, but I do have to, I have to edit my desires. When we described our, our training program that Adrian Van Diemen gave us earlier, that program, I would say you outlined the basic elements. We had some very high cadence pedaling. We had some VO2 early kind of reverse periodization elements. We had yep. a lot of force work yep. in the gym yep. and, and then later on the bike. And then on the bike as well, bringing it together on the bike with the yep. high torque, low cadence um, yep. efforts. So I would say that program covered a lot of bases and that influenced my thinking in a lot of ways that, and honestly, Greg Lamont's book early in my career, I was like, that was such a bread and butter chicken soup type of program. It was yeah. like, okay, this is a good yeah. baseline. Well, I mean, the um, way Adri, the, the way I love it, I, it's amazing how many people do not think of, of just the basic, like, how do you produce power? What is power? Right. So oh, power man. on a I bicycle, it, Hello. Is, <laughs> it is torque multiplied by angular velocity. Correct. Okay. So angular velocity just meaning RPM, like how fast your pedal's going around and how hard you're pushing on the pedal. Pedaling frequency. That is it. <laughs> pedaling frequency yep. times torque. Yep. Or torque times pedaling frequency. Either way. Doesn't matter. Um, and so when people say, I want to increase my power, and right. I said, okay, well, there's two ways you can do that. Well, what do you mean there's two ways you can do that? Well, you can increase the amount of torque you're putting into the pedal, or you or can increase the faster. angular velocity. Yeah. And so if you look at Adri's program, all he was saying is in the early parts of the program, before you get into the sort of closer to the season where you're refining things, the early parts of the program is let's do high RPM stuff to increase the speed at which you can move the pedal. Mm -hmm. And then let's do weightlifting to increase the amount of mm -hmm. torque you can put onto the pedal. You're just, ice, you're just reducing those two components and yep. focusing on them. And it's, it's so... It's so basic, basic when you right, see it, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, okay. So I got to tell my Eddie Merck story again. Jan's heard this one a few times. <laughs> Uh, supposedly there was a, a school child in Belgium, you know, many years ago and Eddie Merckx went to the elementary school to whatever, to hand out his Eddie Merckx posters and right. baseball cards. You know, he gave a speech and the kid said, Mr. Merckx, I want to win my local time trial. How do I do it? Do I push a big gear slowly or a little gear quickly? And of course, Eddie Merckx responded, you push a big gear quickly. Right. Right. So that's exactly what you're talking about is torque, how hard you push on the pedal, yeah. which is which is force, which when you put it in a circle is torque yep. and how quickly you make force, which when you put in a circle is cadence or angular velocity. Yeah. What drives me nuts about 99% of all modern head units. And for some reason, this is such an antiquated, weird artifact of coaching. What do we track in, in, on our, most of our head units, we track power and we track cadence. Mm -hmm. Why do we do this? Most riders don't even know what torque is. Right. Now, when I worked at SRM in 2015, I lobbied hard. That was when the PC8 head unit was coming out. I was like, oh, you need to have a torque widget on this head unit. I will right. prescribe you. If I have riders who are using this head unit and they can see torque, yeah. why, why would we prescribe a workout and tell someone, I want you to do this many watts and this much cadence? Now, granted, of course, the torque is a result of that yeah. equation. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the point is, conceptually, if a rider understands what cadence is, they should understand yeah. what torque is. Right. And they, a lot, many riders I know are like, what's torque? I don't even know what that is. It's like, right. this is a component of how you're making power. Like this is a very basic fundamental concept. So that always bothered me a bit. The only other head unit that ever had torque displayed on it was the older Cyclops one that we used in like 2013, had it for a while and then it fizzled yeah, yeah. out. But well, that, you know, frustrating. 
when I raced, I used, as you know, 180 millimeter cranks. Yes. <laughs> people thought that was like, I was Insane. out of my mind. Like, why are you using 180 cranks? And the reason is this, is that... Um, you got to tell the Johan story on this. Too. As a, you know, as a human being, I am unable to produce very much torque. Like, I... When I go to the gym, I can I can do squats and leg press and everything until the cows come home. And my muscular ability to to push hard on a pedal is very limited. I'm just not a you're not a fast twitch. Yeah, I'm not a strong guy. I've, right. I've got little tiny hips with little tiny glutes and little tiny legs. So with 180s, it wasn't like every. It, it, it's funny in that era, everyone's like, "Oh, 180s, yeah, but you have to be strong to push 180s. Like you have to be." big strong man to push 180s mm. but the reason was is no i'm actually this is an attempt by me to compensate for a natural weakness that i have by using 180s i'm i am increasing my angular velocity because i'm making the right. circle bigger yes so i'm increasing the amount of movement that i have and but, the foot speed but i could handle movement you could handle the foot I had speed and the range great, of motion yeah exactly i had a great like yeah. right i had great hip flexibility um i had like good ankle flexibility so I could deal with the larger circle. Yep. Um, and your hips were relatively stable on the bike. Yeah. And yeah. And I had a large oxygen delivery system. Mm -hmm. Like that was never a rate limiting factor for me. So like by increasing the amount of movement, there was no real downside to it. I mean, the one downside you could say is that my knees were coming up further into my chest so I couldn't be as aerodynamic. But like, but that aside, mm -hmm. there was really no downside for me to using a longer crank. Like I, you know, sure I was maybe being less efficient, strictly speaking, but I was trading off that oxygen carrying efficiency for a little more torque, which was and, a major rate limiting factor. And you factor. could afford it. You could afford the O2. Yeah. Yeah. Because right. you had a high VO2. So, and I mean, explaining that to Johan Bernil <laughs> in like, you know, and you know, you show up to training camp and, and he's like, hey, what is hey, this? Hey, why do you have the long cranks on the bike? Hey. And so then, you know, and you, you know, I try to explain that to him and it's like, I might as well have been speaking Eskimo. Right. I mean, it's like, he just like looked at me and he's like turned to the mechanic and said, change his cranks. Yep. That was it. Just done. Like done. no discussion. Like, okay, to 175. You're, 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 now you're, I'm changing cranks. Come I don't on. care how many miles you've got in your legs at this point in the season. You are now riding 175. Of course. I snuck back to putting 180s on the bike and just like scraped off the 180 with a file, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, you know, th this is, but yeah, I mean the, that that explanation and argument I make about angular velocity in a larger circle and like less efficient, but yet I had a greater, I had a very high VO two, so I could afford the less efficiency. Yep. Blah blah blah. Like, I he mean, doesn't care. Yeah. So, <laughs> and those, I think you're spot on on all those points. I will mention that most, the vast majority of all riders, this is you I'm talking to out there. You think you're JV right now, but you're not. I swear. This is he's in a very very small select percentage of people who would benefit from going to longer cranks. And whenever someone comes into my fit studio and they ask me, should I go to longer cranks? I'll lay out the exact argument we just had. Well, the majority of people, the answer is no. Maybe That's what I'm saying. Shorter cranks. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're for, for 99% of all riders, the benefits of going shorter far outweigh any potential oh, yeah. risk or totally. liability of going long. Yeah, I mean, Danny yeah. Martinez, um, <laughs> you know, who, Columbia national time trial champion. And the guy, I mean, that guy can produce some numbers that you would not believe. Like if he ever, if he ever figures out how to manage himself in the front of the Peloton, whew, look out, super old school coach. 
He's well, a little little clumsy guy. So 170s for road racing, 172.5s for time trialing. And I was just like, what? Why? Why? Why are you doing this? He said, oh, well, you have to push a bigger gear in a time yeah. trial. I'm like, yeah, but you're not pushing any more torque. Like, do you, no. you know, you're, yeah, okay, it's a bigger gear, but you're going 55K an hour, man. You're at like 105 RPM when you're time trialing. Like, you don't need a longer yeah. cranks. Like, again, like, I mean, we eventually just convinced. I mean, basically, that was a moment where I'm like, I'm your boss. You're putting on 170s. Right. You know, whatever. You yo him. <laughs> yeah, I did. I yo I Johan'd him. But, <laughs> but there was logic behind it. Damn it. You actually understood the yeah, argument. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that that's, yeah, for most people who, unless you have exceptional hip flexibility, and remember how I used to always put my foot behind my head? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like. Unless you have exceptional hip flexibility and you have like a you know very high VO two max, exceptional hip flexibility, exceptional uh, ankle mobility, no, like long cranks are not gonna. They're well, like also just they're not gonna help you. Your seat height is what eighty five centimeters ish. No, that's like my my inseam is like eighty eight. <laughs> okay, so. your saddle height's ninety nine <laughs> centimeters. What no, I don't no. know. <laughs> no, I think my saddle height's like seventy seven. That makes sense. That doesn't. No, it's higher. That's about seven centimeters higher than mine. I think. Yeah, that's right. Is yeah, it seven? Yeah. yeah, about seventy-seven. All right. Well, I'm not that much taller than you. Never fit JB on a bike, yeah. in case you were wondering. All right. Yeah. Well, anyway, point being is you've got longish legs for sure. Yeah. So, also, you know, when people ask me about changing crank length and if, and I'm working on them as a bike fitter. I'll explain to them, look, the only people that really are justified in potentially pushing the envelope on longer crank length are people who are world tour pros who are trying to win the Vuelta. Because every year the Vuelta has six mountaintop finishes yeah, that are like 25% or higher. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. insanely yeah. steep. They love these yeah. finishes that are like 4K long that just go yeah. up the side of a tree. And at that moment, when you are out of gears, meaning... Yeah you're in your lowest gear and you're going as hard as you can yeah. and you're out of the saddle most of the time at that yeah. moment, the longer crank you have pretty much the faster you're going to go. Oh, yeah. So are you being paid a lot of money to win these stages? Well, yeah. then you should figure out how to drag that longer crank length around for the under 364 right. days a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the rest of us yeah. who are the vast majority of all bike riders, that's not your end goal. And yeah. you don't want to have to deal with all the extra hip motion. And really people don't realize two and a half mils is, is not trivial in the world of foot speed. When you do right. the math, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big but impact the funny thing, in range know, of motion and foot speed. Boy, I hope you're you have a very nerdy audience for this. Um, but uh, when nerd out with the little Colombians that we have, like Sergio Higuita, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Higuita's five he, four. Higuita monster. Higuita monster. And you know he rides one seventies. Right. If you do the percentage math on oh, his yeah. inseam, it's that's like me riding two forties. Yeah, it's like a Leonard's in conversation. Yeah, yeah. you know. So, right. but like. Well, we can't get them 150s. They don't exist. I mean, well, I, I mean, well, okay. I guess not sponsor correct ones, but yes. yes. <laughs> right, exactly. So, <laughs> I, and, and, also and by riding. the way, like I, he'd be, like he wouldn't be okay with it. If no, I was like, you're yeah. going to ride 150s, he'd, he'd just, it would be like, no, there would be no buy-in to that. <laughs> just, so it just, but if you do the math on it, I have an 88 centimeter um, inseam. Right. And I don't know what his is, but you know, it's probably in the like low 60s. So like, mm -hmm. You know, so imagine we have a 25 centimeter difference. So that's the equivalent of 40% difference in leg length, right? So he's four. So our 170 cranks 40% smaller than 180 cranks? No, not even close. Right. So he's getting an enormous amount of leverage. Yes. And you can see it when he time trials, you know, 
it's like you're always like that something doesn't look right. What is this? Like he's because you know his knees are coming way up into his chest. And he can't get and that his, low. And his and hips are rocking around. And yep. like he'd probably be great on like 150 cranks. Right. Maybe on the TT biking. Yeah. I mean, bit. it's get just like can you you know can, how the question there is when do you start seeing uh, because if if you're totally used to 170 cranks, you're totally used to 165s, or totally used to 175s. There's a certain, you know, you become more efficient from an oxygen carrying standpoint in that exact circle of motion, right? Like little by little yeah. by little. I, I mean, know. some of the stuff Jim Martin's done. At yeah, it shows, Utah, that it's not. shows that I just, it's not. I know. It yeah. just, to me, it's just like, but, well, yeah, but it's the, but it's the more repetition you're doing in this perfect, you know, 175. Yeah, the, there's some muscle memory and some right. neural patterning that so, happens there, but. I don't know how, how, you know, is it yeah. five millimeters? Uh, my it, take is how, that how much can you reduce somebody well, for a specific event? Think about it logically. Like, okay, re do take any or repetitive increase. action, right? It could be whatever. It can be cycling, but it could be rowing or throwing a football or whatever. Take any repetitive action and repeat it to the maximum range of motion with quite a bit of force over and over again and train there and train there and train there. That's going to put a certain demand on your nervous system. It's going to entrain your nervous system to perform certain activities. The muscles will fire in a certain pattern, et cetera. You'll become adapted to that and you'll eventually over a long enough timeline begin to have sports specific adaptations to that neural pattern. Yeah. If we take that same activity and we reduce the range of motion, that's lowering neural demand. I don't, even though it's a change, I could be wrong about this. And maybe so there's you're a neurologist saying you can shift there. down, but not up. Exactly. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's my argument. I could be wrong about yeah. that. If somebody's a neurologist and they want to come debate me, please send me an email. Because, we'll you know, for a lot of, talk about it for time trials where you're dealing with mainly speaking with higher RPMs, mainly speaking, lower torque situations. And I know, again, this yep. is. Most people are going to say, what do you mean lower torque? No. Time trials, you're not accelerating very Look, much. Well, when you have a head unit with torque on it, you see the average yeah, torque. You would say, yeah, <laughs> you aren't, you would not be, in Which a time I have. trial, you, you aren't jumping out of corners. You aren't following attacks. Not if you're trial, doing it right. Yeah, not if you're doing it right. <laughs> exactly. So in a time trial, you've got lower average torque. Your oxygen carrying component is going to be much. So, you know, the smaller range of motion would actually potentially make sense. See so, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah now, yeah. of course... Comparison A to B, 180s to 170s or whatever, 170s to 160s. Yeah, might be too much, but. Uh, maybe, but the point I'm driving at is that you're you're reducing foot speed when you go from a longer crank to a shorter crank, yeah. assuming your cadence stays the same, which yeah. it probably won't, won't because yeah. the athlete is self-selecting gears, yeah, yeah. which means they're going to gravitate towards what works for yeah. them. This is the yeah. beauty of athletics, especially at the elite levels, that the athlete always solves the equation on their own. You have to let allow for a certain amount of athletic, right. intuitive organismic decision-making. That would probably yeah, not I a real word, but anyway. <laughs> or, organismic? Or, this is my <laughs> universe. Oh, okay. So we go from 170s to 160s. We are, we're reducing the foot speed yeah. and uh, possibly the athlete might shift to compensate for that. But we're also probably increasing torque, but Maybe not, because the fact is that what I have noticed in recording torque on my own head unit is that it doesn't really matter if I'm doing a flat TT or a hilly TT or a climbing time trial, assuming I don't run out of gears, yeah. my kind of torque threshold is my torque threshold. I can yeah, make yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. number of That's newton good. meters, right? No, and I, I shift did. to compensate for that. That's part of solving the equation. So my assumption was just simply that the, because the arc of the pedal stroke with the smaller crank, the arc is different, that somehow you might not have that oxygen carrying efficiency might be lower. Maybe I could be wrong about that. I, well, I, I, I don't know. think anyone's ever really, 
looked at it. Yeah, truly, truly studied that to the degree. Because yeah, I mean the problem is anytime you do a, a you said, well, okay, then let's just do a study with that. Have, let's have an athlete come into the laboratory and pedal at 300 watts using 170s and pedal at 300 watts using 160s. The problem is, is like, well, okay, which one does he do first? Because whichever one he does first. Which one's he adapted to? Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, so it, yeah. it, you know, even just that, oh, well, the laboratory, you know, he was sweating more for the second run than the first run because right. he was slightly fatigued. Well, we can or, reverse the order. To, or, you and, know, yeah, but I mean. Someone go left brain that to death. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you're talking about sort of almost reverse engineering, like just that the the athlete will self-select and then you kind of you adapt the science around that. One of the mm. funny things, you know, from the, well, from every Grand Tour that Rigo's done, but I mean, the one he's most known for in 2017 where he was second in the Tour de France is, you know, uh, uh, Rigo just eats bananas. Right. Like when he races, he eats a lot of bananas. I mean, it's... it's Freakish? Yeah, like it... At least a banana an hour. I will, in my opinion, it's nature's perfect exercise. Yeah. So he just honestly. he just chucks down bananas, right? Yeah. And so I'm talking to our nutritionist Nigel. You know, like, geez, man, like Rigo, he eats a lot of bananas. That's kind of like, I mean, that's what like Joe Dombrowski always used to say. Rigo is like the, the easiest GC rider in the world to have on a team. He's like basically he just. What do you want from the car? Bananas. He, yeah. Well, he's like, he doesn't ask. He's like, he he just wants his teammates to be cool and chill and like not yeah. high stress. And then you give him bananas. And he's like, and that's it. It's like, okay, if the bus is low stress and you give me bananas. Everything's good. Everything's good. Yeah. Like, that's it. There's never any drama with that guy. And so, but halfway through the tour, I'm like, geez, you know, like, have we really looked at Rigo's nutrition? Like, he just... Mm -hmm. He, he just wants like he just eats bananas like you know you've got all these like advanced like super mixes and encapsulated whatever encapsulated carbohydrates that like right. go straight from your stomach into your pituitary gland and produce rocket fuel and whatever right and in Rigo just is like mm, no I'll have banana right and he you know he's second place in the tour on like bananas and and so I'm like, Nigel, you know, gosh, like, isn't this something that we should be looking at? And he's like, oh, we have. And, you know, Rigo just does not change. And and then Nigel just said, listen, you know, he said, sometimes in nutrition, we find out that what the athletes are doing, that's actually, we reverse engineer and figure out, well, that's what they should have been doing. As opposed yeah. to like, this is what you should be doing and now start doing it because we figured out in the laboratory, this is what you should be doing. He's like, I, he's like with Rigo, he's like, my guess is, he's like, no one will really ever know. But my guess is, is that probably if, if we spent five years like studying Rigo's organism or whatever his mm -hmm. or orgasmism, <laughs> like that, <laughs> that he, that we would find out that like actually bananas were the perfect fuel for him. Right. And that, like, messing with that was only going to make him go slower. Yep. I think that's sound. Also, it falls right in line with my preachings. I've been on my soapbox earlier about how bananas really are the perfect well, food and we should eat more real food on the bike. I mean, yeah. Well, this is like, – I remember when when I did Philly. Now, you know, I – yeah, well, to this day, like, my blood glucose is a little funky, right? You're an endurance athlete. It's pretty common. With long races, you know, I would bonk really easily. I mean, you, you remember, like, I didn't particularly like long rides or long races. I remember you starting long road races with one protein shake. Totally. In your exactly. down tube bottle. Or like at Philly, which is, you know, a seven hour race. Yeah. I 
uh, the year, one year that I did really well there, like I, in my feedback halfway through the race, it was a turkey sandwich, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had like a, just a full on turkey sandwich, extra mayo, no tomatoes. Right. You know, it was like turkey and cheese. And I ate a turkey sandwich halfway through, you know, and, Philly. And you probably went really well. Yeah. yeah. And it was great because yeah. I, I had like nice stable blood glucose for like mm -hmm. the last three hours of the race because I had a big old turkey sandwich. Everyone else is eating their 12th gel. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I've, I have a big problem with the culture of endurance sports, how we kind of have justified the consumption of all these sugars. I mean, if you walked into a 7-Eleven and saw a bunch of gels, you'd be like, that's garbage. Don't eat that. But because it comes in a fancy wrapper and it costs $2 and it has you. aminos, now it's a sports fuel. Yeah. yeah, yeah and it's yeah, good yeah. for you and it increases performance. I mean, yeah, yeah. people come on, like eat yeah. real food, eat a fig, eat a banana, right. have a turkey sandwich in a long road race. If right. your stomach can deal with it. I, yeah, I. I struggle with that one hardcore uh, and I'll, I'll probably never eat another gel again in my life. Even if I do sign up for an occasional bike race. No, that's uh, yeah. I, I have not eaten Cake gel frosting. since the, right? Well, no, actually that's not true. It was kind of funny. I would... <laughs> you had one on your mammals race no. with Neil. Oh, uh, you know what? No, I had one right before. You're right. I did. I, I did consume a gel. Like it was like 20 minutes before we started. I did have a gel. That's the last gel I had. Yeah. I was, I was actually thinking of this. I went riding with my buddy, Peter, who's like a, you know, he's an art consultant mm -hmm. and like randomly, I it just because I like forgot to eat lunch or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I'm totally bonking. I mean, it was Help. like a two hour ride and I was like, I'm not going to make it home. <laughs> you know, I haven't bonked in a year and I, I seriously thought I wasn't going to, I was going to have to like get an Uber <laughs> and he had like two gels and I was just, it was like the best tasting food <laughs> I've ever had, these right. two gels. Mm. But I would never think to carry a gel with me on a ride anymore. Oh, right. no. Right. Ugh. It took me like five years before I could eat spaghetti again after I stopped racing. I'm the same way. I still cannot really enjoy pasta. To me, pasta is rocket fuel. It's like race fuel. Yeah. Anyone who sits down and eats a plate of pasta and I'm like, what, are you going to go run a marathon the next day? Oh yeah. no, I'm just like pasta. What's, what's wrong with you? Like pasta is a rare, irrevocably changed in my mind forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to rewind one more time to the Adri <laughs> conversation and, and tie it into our discussion just now about athletes solving their equation. So, right. Adri's program was very, had a lot of different components to it. Now we have people like Steven Seiler, who is basically looking at the performance of elite athletes and reverse engineering how they solve yeah. their own equation, yeah. right? And his conclusions from that, I'd love to see. And of course, then we have on one side of the fence, we have Inigo. And then on the other side, we have Seiler. So to refresh the context, Inigo is all about zone two yeah. fat max training, right? Which is like plowing along at, for most people, 230, 250 watts ish yeah. for a typical well, amateur for, for so four or five, that's six hours. That's not just most people. I don't, I don't think, you know, my mom can. No, no, no. I'm talking about 250 watts for five hours. <laughs> talking about our Jim Beasley, you know, right, really, yeah, really yeah. fit type. Right. He's an old friend of ours who right. didn't race a lot, but was really fit. And then on the other side, we have. Siler's system, which is extremely polarized, right? And Siler's Yeah, he's top bottom. He's top and bottom. Like yep. you either you either light it up and make yourself bleed from the eyeballs, yep. or you're riding along at like German sprinter pace, like zone one, like looking at the flowers and stopping for coffee. And the answer is somewhere in between, probably. I mean, it, it, that's the as it usually is. Right. I mean, you know, that's so going when you're talking about athlete self-selecting now, you and I learned all this stuff about Adri. Right. With, from Adri, you know, like you're going to do these five minute intervals at 400 watts and you're going to do. <laughs> well, this. you were doing them at 400. I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, you're going to do this threshold effort at three, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right? And then I remember the, some of the races and especially time trials that I did immediately after sort of going through the Adri boot camp of six months, you know, my pacing was all wrong, right? Like I was like, okay, I can do 
360 watts in this time trial. And I would do 360 watts on the uphill and 360 watts on the downhill and 360 right. watts on the flats. I'm like, well, you know, 360 watts. And like, mm, that, that result uh, didn't think, work. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember observing a guy who I trained with in Spain a lot. And I would only train with this guy once. Like, at first I trained with him a lot. But then once I started really doing the Adri program, he wouldn't ride with me anymore because he found it extremely annoying to ride with me. It's this guy, Vicente Aparicio. In Vicente Aparicio, I think he was fifth in the Vuelta in like 94, 95. So like, you know, this is your typical Spanish Benesto climber, you know, had a six, seven year career, made enough money to buy a house and then never touched a bike again and probably like lives on cigarettes and French fries now. But, but anyway, Vicente, it was real simple, like training, you go out with him and it was pretty much always a rolling ride. He'd never liked to do big mountains, even though he's a climber and he never liked to ride on the flats. So we'd always do a rolling ride. And he would get out of the saddle on the uphill of the roll, the one end, like crank it all the way to the top and then coast all yes. the way down. Yeah. Crank on the top and coast. And so, and that was all he ever did. Like it was just, it was, if you're on an uphill, you're like, you're hitting it as hard as you can. And if you're on the downhill, even on the flat, like he would just noodle. roll and noodle along yeah. on the flat. And so I'm thinking, okay, this guy got fifth in the Vuelta and I got 149th. Right. <laughs> What? So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, what's going on here. Yep. And that's, and that's part of the learning. Like with Adri, he taught us how to like, you know, look at power data and how to understand what your body could produce or whatever. But there was this point where I had to shift back to like the super mm -hmm. old school Regina five speed freewheel yep. where it's like, wait a minute actually like okay like this power stuff is interesting but like if i just am dead steady about every time trial i'm, I'm never going to do well in a time trial again right i actually have to modulate this based on like and you know and modulation in a time trial is really simple the slower you're going the higher your power up which yep. should be like coming out of a corner you're going slow your power out should be really high going on a downhill you're going really fast your power out should, should the be most low time is long and lost the slower yeah, you're going slower you're going so so don't but, lose time there yeah you know, it was almost like we were programmed a certain way really early. And then like all mm -hmm. that was totally unwound by Audrey's training, which was really effective. But then you, you kind of had to pull back to a little bit of more of just the instinctive yeah. stuff. And, and you know, and like Vicente Aparicio, this guy never even used a heart. No, right, right. Let alone a power meter, right? Yeah. Had no idea what. Yeah. So and for context on that, I mean, JV and I live on the front range of Colorado, which is like. We're at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. You look west, it goes straight up. You look east, you see Kansas. Like we're literally at the foot of the Rockies. So our terrain is either like a 20 mile canyon or like endless flat roads. So when Adri said, go out and do a three hour ride in zone two power, we could literally do that for almost every minute of the ride yeah. and come home with almost no time in zone three, four, five, or however you want to call it. Yeah. When you live in a rolling area, first of all, you adapt to that terrain. And and I noticed in my career early racing, I would go race against guys who are brought up on the East Coast, you know, the McCormick brother, for example. Right. They probably train exactly like Vicente does. Like yeah. they live in Massachusetts and go right. on these rides where it's like 1K roller up, 1K roller down. And all day long, they just go smash up these rollers in their big ring. And guess what they could do to me in races? <laughs> they could really mess me up on little rolling hills. Yeah. But if I got them in a long flat stage, it was okay. So... Yeah, I think metabolically the load that Adrian gave us when he gave us those rides had a definitely a good training effect. I mean, there's there's it's hard to go out and ride if you've never done it. Try but to it go can't riding. be exclusive. It had a great metabolic, yes. but it's like this is the Agreed. so it's like, you know, the Inigo thing, whereas Inigo basically is like you 
only need to train in zone two. I mean, he, right. he's like religious about it. Yes. I mean, he is a zealot. He's yes. truly like preaching to the world. Like this is the only where as conversely, there are a lot of other people that have a very opposite theory to that. And yeah. the answer is, I think in coaching is, is like, how do you balance it? And certain athletes need to be a little bit more on the on off and the other athletes need to be a little bit more of the, the ego. And it, it yep. depends what their race goals are. depends on what their physiology is. What, you know. Yes. I was going to bring up a point. You mentioned Frankie McCormick. Do you remember the race announcer on the East coast that loved Frankie McCormick? He was like the race announcer. He was like the Dave toll of the East coast. No. Back in the day. Uh-uh. Yeah, his name was Dick ring. Remember uh-huh. Dick ring? No. I don't remember Dick Ring. <laughs> Dick, I just he always used to say when at the Fitchburg Longhoe Classic, he, he, whenever yeah. Frankie McCormick would attack, he'd say, "Lord Love a Duck, that's Frankie McCormick on the attack." I'm your announcer, Dick Ring. <laughs> <laughs> and the first time you heard that, you looked around and went, "I'm like, am what? I being pranked?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this guy's okay. His name's okay. Dick Ring. Dick Ring. Okay. Yeah. So, and there you go. Take from that, which is This is Dick Ring here, and we're here. We're going to watch Frankie McCormick, local hero, Worcester, Massachusetts. Yep. Who probably won Fitchburg nine times in a row oh, or yeah, something. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Lord love a duck. Lord love a duck. Which actually, the, the love isn't the actual expression. Right, it's a right. Word. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes we have to do these things, you know. You got to Disney-fy some. Uh, <clears throat> that's great. That's a perfect way to end. Yeah. Good adventures. Okay, boys and girls, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jonathan Vodders. He's a smart guy, and he's got a lot of interesting observations to make about training and so forth. If you want to check out more about JV, he wrote a book recently. I'm in a little bit of it. It's called One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels, a memoir. I might have got part of the title out of order on that, but we're going to put a link in the show notes for that. So make your keyboard mudras and check it out. We're also going to put a link in there to what appears to be Audrey's website. That's Audrey Van Diemen, the uh, coach that JV and I spoke about many times in our episode. And it's in Dutch, so I'm pretty sure that's the right website. But I'll let you go forth and explore. If you want to check out any of my goodies on the social needs, check out my Instagram account. That's Cycling in Alignment on Instagram. You can also look at me on my website. That's colbypierce.com. It doesn't get any simpler than that. It's just my name with a .com afterwards. Does that mean I've been commercialized? I'll stop now. Have a good day. Thanks for listening.